Here's another Bible study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. First John chapter 2, verses 7 through 17. And uh, I titled this, I don't have the title on here, but it's One Commandment, Four People, and Three Plays. You might go, what in the world? Hopefully, you'll, hopefully by, the time, by, by the time I finish this service, you will understand. Thank you, Teresa. <laughs> She's looking at me. Um, all right, so first commandment, and that's at uh, verse 7 of 1 John chapter 2. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you had from the beginning, or which, excuse me, the old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. So what is he talking about an old commandment? Well, it's old chronologically with respect to, the, to uh, time, this commandment. We'll talk about it in a moment. Because in Leviticus, this is when the children of Israel were coming through the wilderness. They weren't even quite established as a nation yet. They weren't in the land of Canaan yet. Even back then, God was preparing their hearts. And he, was, he said this to them in Leviticus 19, verse 18. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Have you ever heard that before? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Thousands of years ago, God was already communicating this to his people, the children of Israel. Hey, you're to love your neighbor. So this is an old commandment that we're going to be looking at this morning. And yet, verse 8, again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So it was an old commandment because it was given years ago, to the children of Israel, but it's a new commandment. So what's new about it? Well, it's new in re- with respect to freshness and quality. And, and, and it says that it's true in him. It's speaking of Jesus Christ. And if you think about it, the commandment to love your neighbors, you know, uh, as yourself, I mean, you might have this concept of what that means or how you would live that out. And the Jewish people, I'm sure, had that same feeling, too. You know, how do we how do we do this? Do I share my falafels with them or, you know, whatever it is? Um, They had a concept. But you see, when Jesus Christ came, lived and died on the cross, he gave a whole new fresh meaning to loving your neighbor as yourself. His life and his example, it's true in him. Jesus said this to his disciples in John 13, 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. That's what's new about it. Love your neighbor, love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Well, how has Christ loved us? Well, we just celebrated Easter, so hopefully you guys know. 1 John three sixteen. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us. There's a perfect example of loving your neighbor. He laid down his life for us. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us while that we were yet sinners. I I, kind of, yeah, I got that in here. While we were yet sinners. My notes don't say yet, so anyways. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I'm sure I got a little different translation there. But the point is, God demonstrated his love towards people that didn't love him, to people that hated him. That's love. That's, that's demonstrating love. 2 Corinthians 8, verse uh, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. So the commandment, love, love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, okay, I'm trying to understand how that is. Look at Jesus. Man. How he lived it. It gave it a new freshness, a new quality to the old commandment. It's true in him, John says, and it's also true in you and me, the born again believer. How is it true? I love the King James Version of Romans 5 5. It's probably the way I memorized it as a kid, but the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which he has given unto us. You and I as born-again believers, we have received 
the gift of the Holy Spirit. Every, uh, according to Paul in Ephesians, every, every born-again believer in Jesus Christ, they have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside them as a sign and a seal of their covenant, as a down payment, basically. And so the Spirit of God, and the Bible says God is love, and His Spirit's in us. And what's the fruit of the Spirit? Galatians 5.22, it's love. So it's true in Jesus Christ because he demonstrated it, but it should be true in you and I as a believer because we're in fellowship with the Lord God and we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. So this old and yet new commandment is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Notice that verse there that it says the darkness is passing away. That's present tense. If you look at the, you know, it's not like the darkness in us is gone. I wish that was the case. I wish the darkness was gone in me. I, I, I just, I can't wait. You know, we were worshiping this morning, and maybe while we were worshiping, you're thinking, man, I wonder what kind of food's in there in the fellowship hall, or I wonder if we're going to get done, or, oh, they're doing that song. Or, you know, what, our minds are distracted during worship because of our flesh. Can you imagine when you and I are standing before the throne in heaven, and our flesh is gone. Can you imagine how beautiful and perfect that, that worship service is going to be for eternity? It's going to be blessed. So the darkness is passing away. It has, it's not gone, but it is passing away. And the true light is already shining. And last week we talked about light and darkness. Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians 3.18, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. How are we being transformed from glory to glory? How are we becoming more, looking more like Jesus Christ? Well, it's by being in fellowship with God. That's the answer. Last week, one of the things I mentioned as I was doing an introduction to 1 John is that John deals with a lot of certainties in this epistle. There's a lot of things of how you can know, and by this we know this, and all these things that we can know. And, you th- and I mentioned it last week. Why, why was John so, why was that the, the, the focus of his writing? Well, he wrote this towards the end of his life. He had already been on the island of Patmos. He had already seen the revelation of Jesus Christ in his glory. And then, according to church tradition, they believe, anyways, that he was released and he went to Ephesus. And this is where he penned these. So he's seen Jesus in the flesh. He walked among them. He felt him. He, he ate with them. You know, he saw everything that Jesus as a human. And then he saw him die and he saw him resurrected. Then he was there when Jesus ascended into heaven. Then he sees Jesus in his glory. And somebody that's seen all that, they go, I, I, I can tell you a few things for sure. Heaven is real. I mean, don't forget about the book or the movie. Heaven is real, you know. John saw it. John witnessed it. So he writes a lot of things about how you can be sure. So last week, we talked about this. How can we know with certainty that we are in fellowship with God? It shouldn't be something like, I wonder if I'm in fellowship with God. We should know. And how do we know? Well, true fellowship with God is dependent on whether we are in darkness or in light. It's pretty simple, whether they're in darkness or in light. And John in his epistle points to two causes of darkness. And we talked about the first one last week. The first cause of darkness is sin. The Bible says God is light and sin is darkness. And if you haven't heard that message, you can, you can get on the internet and go back to Facebook. You can listen to them again, actually. That's the first cause. The second cause of darkness is right here in verse 9. He says, he who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. So what's the second cause of darkness? Hate, which, by the way, is also sin. Okay, It's, over, it's sin overall, but it's hate. And it, why wouldn't John just write, you know, why would he mention, you know, uh, hating your brother if that's sin? And he was talking about sin before. Why did he divide it? And I think there's a really good explanation for that. Because you see, as believers, we first have to have our relationship with the Lord right. We have to deal with the sin issue in our lives and have a right relationship with God. But our walk in the Lord, it doesn't end there. 
We're to have a vertical relationship right with the Lord, and we're have to have a right relationship horizontally with our brothers and sisters. If you're missing one or the other, there are people that are, you know, they, they, they're full of love. They love everybody. They, you know, they, they do kind things to people. They recycle. I mean, whatever they do, you know, they're, they're loving people. They love humanity. But they don't have a right relationship with God. They're still in the darkness. And yet, on the other side of that, believers, people that go, man, I've got a right relationship with the Lord. But you have animosity. You're hating somebody. You're in darkness too. And that's why John is trying to bring that out. You can't have both. You can't have, uh, you can't have one without the other if you want to be in true fellowship with God. Verse 10, he writes, He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. And I know what you're thinking right now this morning. You might be thinking, well, might be thinking, I'm not a mind reader or anything, but... You're probably thinking, hey, I don't hate anybody. Maybe you're ever in that odds with them. I, I don't hate the person. And so you can check off the box. Now, I, I don't hate him. When he says there in verse 10, he who loves his brother abides in the light, he's not using the Greek word phileo. That's brotherly love. That's kindness. That's just being a friend, basically. He's not talking about phileo, loving your brother. He's also not talking about storge, loving his brother. Storge is familial love, like literally your brother. You love your brother because you've you know, you got the same blood. You're, you know, you're raised in the same family or your parent or your child, whatever. That's not the love that he's talking about here. It's the agape love. That's the highest love. That's the love where God laid down his life for us while we were still enemies. That's the love that gives without, without expecting anything in return. So you might say, I don't, I don't hate anybody. Okay, but are you, are you loving them the way the word says here? Wow, that's a tough thing, even for me as a pastor. So sin, hatred, or even just lack of agape love towards others, it brings darkness. It brings a break in fellowship in our hearts. But you and I have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. You just said earlier, Pastor. And he's a sign and a seal. He hasn't left us. And that's absolutely true. But the Bible also says when we're out of fellowship with God, we grieve the Holy Spirit who's inside us. We're grieving him when we're in darkness. Proverbs 4.18.19 says this, But the path of the just is like the shining sun that shines ever brighter unto the perfect day. The way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. Man, if you have unforgiveness, bitterness, envy, malice in your heart, it's going to cause you to stumble in your fellowship with God as well as in your relationship with others, your fellowship with others. If those things are are lodged in our hearts, so we really have to deal with those issues. The Bible talks about not having a root of bitterness springing up in your heart. Man, we've got to deal with those things. And the Bible even tells us how to deal with them biblically. You can go to Matthew chapter 18. How do you deal with a big book? Well, there's scripture that tells us to do, how to do that. So, you're a believer. You've been doing everything you're supposed to be doing as far as you know in your relationship. <clears throat> and you've got animosity with someone or they've got animosity with you. And you know what, I just had this commandment, and maybe you're like, man, I'm feeling condemned because I've got this relationship. Listen, relationships are complicated. (laughs) They are complicated. And I wish I could just say, well, here's the answer for all of you in your situation. It's just a blanket thing. It's not a blanket thing. You have to deal with whatever the unique situation of the relationship. But here's the thing. Make sure your heart's good. Make sure your heart is right in in the situation. Make sure you're not harboring unforgiveness, that you're not bitter, that you have to deal with that in your heart. You have no control over the other person. You can love them, you can pray for them. In fact, you should love them and you should pray for them. <clears throat> the more you pray for them, actually, the more you're going to love them. It just, it's weird, but it works that way. <laughs> so how do you do that? Man, I, you just got to get into the Word. Seek God's will in this. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you, how do, how do I deal with this situation? You know, <clears throat> I'm finding with the Lord, I, I, I should know this from the beginning, but 
God answers prayer. He really does. And if you're sincere and you want to know, Lord, how do I navigate this relationship? That's God will reveal it to you. And like Paul says, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Man, if you can be at peace, even if they're at war with you, praise God, man. You're not the one that's causing the break in fellowship. That, that's, that's a good place to be. So, anyways, let's move on here. So that's the first commandment. The first commandment is to love our neighbors as ourselves. The next part of this message that Paul deals with is four people. Four people. <clears throat> And I have to ask this question rhetorically. You don't have to shout it out or anything. But who is this epistle written to? You know, most of John's or most of Paul's, I should say, the apostles, their epistles are written to an individual. You know, Paul writes to Timothy or to Titus or to the church in Thessalonica or the church in Ephesus. You know, they're written to things. The, the John's epistles, we don't know who they're written to, at least First John anyways. Don't know who it's written to. It's not written to any one individual or even any one particular church. It's written to believers in general. Why? Because it's applicable to all believers, what he's writing here. It's not, there's not a special situation out in Asia Minor. No, it it's applies then, everywhere, and here, everywhere. It's applicable to all stages of the believer's life. And there are four types of believers in the kingdom of God. That's where I got the title, Four People, by the way. <laughs> so let me ask you this, and we can think about this as I read this. Which one are you? Which one are you? Listen to verse 12. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. i got to be perfectly honest with you. I struggled for quite a while in preparing this message on these verses. Because I'm like, why... Does John mention fathers twice and little children twice? And why do you say, I have written to you and I write to you? I mean, what is that? And so I was trying to figure it out. I couldn't get the answer. I started looking in commentaries. They're clueless too. I'm like, what is the deal with this? So I'll be honest with you. I don't know. I really, I honestly don't know. Maybe you already know. You can share it with me after church. But I want to encourage you in something. There are precious gems buried in this these few verses here there's something in there there's a reason why it's written the way i don't know what it is yet but there is a reason why it's written that way there's a reason why paul or john used these words under the inspiration of the holy spirit there are precious gems buried beneath the verses uh, 12 through 14 like for example why the reputation and here's the encouraging challenge for you proverbs 25 verse 2 it is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings to search out a matter. This is what I love about studying the Bible. You know, I'm preparing a message and stuff. It's, I, I, I very rarely, if ever, go back to my... I don't even know I keep my old notes because I don't go back to them. I just get into the Bible. Lord, I just need a fresh vision of what you want to speak through this. And so I'm digging in there and, and trying to find things. And when you find something through study, it's It's awesome. It, it just brings that passage of Scripture to life to you personally. And so an encouragement to you. Your pastor just said, hey, I don't know, I don't really understand fully. Man, that's an encouragement for you. Dig in, man. Be like a Berean. Bereans, like they listen to their pastor or the Paul and they go, well, I wonder if he's real. I'm, I'm going to dig in and do my own Bible study. I encourage you to do that because you might uncover a gem that would bless all of us. So he says there in verse 12, I write to you, little children. That word, little children, it's the same Greek word used in verse 1 of chapter 2, and it means an infant. All born-again believers, all believers who are born again into the family of God, we start out as infants, babes in Christ. We all start out that way. And as a babe in Christ, now I don't know about your life, maybe you were you know, raised in a Christian home and you've never committed any kind of sins that you know of or whatever, but at some point you gave your heart to Christ. Praise the Lord that you did. You have a testimony, by the way. It's, you know, you don't have to be an axe murderer or a gang member. And you know, I did all these terrible things, and now I'm a believer. It's like, oh, well, that's awesome. 
But if you were raised in a Christian home, man, praise God, and you didn't fall into those temptations that a lot of us do, praise the Lord. That is a testimony that's going to encourage somebody. I don't have that one. <laughs> Excuse me. I didn't get a whole lot of sleep last night, so <laughs> I'm not getting real emotional. I'm just tired. <laughs> hey, as a babe in Christ, and I know this meant a lot to me, how precious it is to know that all your sins are forgiven. What a, man, what a load. Lift it off. It's so important to know that all, all our sins, not just some, you know, there's no probation period with the Lord. It's not like, okay, we're going to try you out as a baby believer and, you know, you got to do such and such and at six months we'll revisit your salvation. It ain't that way. Praise God it's not that way. All your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I love this verse, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. How foundational that is for a new baby in Christ to understand that. It's foundational. Jesus was meeting with Simon a Pharisee in Luke chapter 7, verse 40. And there were some other people in the house with Jesus. There was a woman who was caught in adultery, and, and she came. There were tax collectors. They were, and this Pharisee is like having a really, he's struggling with this. And Jesus said something to him. In verse 40, of, and you don't have to turn there, but Luke 7, verse 40, he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. And then Jesus said this. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owned 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he free, freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. And there's a whole story behind that. You have rightly judged. Listen, a baby Christian, a baby believer in Christ, is full of joy. I can speak about it because I know that. man. I, when I accepted Christ, I was so joyful. And I wanted to share it with everybody. And what a cool thing. Man, I, my sins have been forgiven in Christ. I remember running, going back to my mom, you know, because I was at a. So, Dennis Agaginian's one of the musicians that's playing at this crusade. When I was in fifth grade, a friend of mine invited me to his uh, uh, summer camp in, at Hume Lake up in the uh, Sierra Nevada mountains, just south of Kings Canyon National Park, just kind of east of Fresno, a few hours up into the mountains. And uh, I went there in fifth grade, summer of fifth grade. In summer of sixth grade, I went there. Dennis Agaginian was the worship leader for this camp. And that was that year that I gave my heart to Christ. So there's a connection I have with uh, the world's fastest flat picker. <laughs> Anyways, I think that's, I don't know if that's his official title, but he's definitely quick. Why did I bring that up? Good question. <laughs> oh, <laughs> when you come to faith in Christ, man, you're, you're just, there's joy. And the next thing that's joyful is when you find out that somebody else is a believer. Oh, you love Jesus too? So do I. Awesome. You know, and you get some fellowship, right? And you, and you get together, and that is great, and that happens. It's exciting to meet fellow believers. But listen, we have to be careful. Because not everybody that claims the name of Jesus Christ is a born-again believer. I remember being so excited about some guy, and it turned out he was a Jehovah's Witness. So I'm like, oh, okay, well, but. We have to be careful because as a babe, it's, we can get led astray without discernment pretty easily. In fact, Paul even addresses that. In 1 Corinthians 14, 20, Brethren, do not be children in understanding, however in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. Be innocent when it comes to malice, hatred, envy, you know, all those things that go along with malice, wishing somebody would die. You know, be a babe in that, in that respect. But in your understanding, man, grow up, be mature. Well, how do we mature in our understanding? Peter says this, 1 Peter 2.2, 2, As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. So this epistle applies to the babe in Christ. Jesus is writing to the little children whose sins are forgiven. The newborn babe in Christ needs to hear and understand and apply this epistle in their new walk so that they're not deceived. 
because it's easy to get deceived as a new believer. We need to get rooted and grounded in the word of God so that when the storms and the trials come and all the weird stuff happens, we don't get uprooted by it. That's the first person. The second person is in verse 13. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. And that's in verse 13 and verse 14. This is the mature believer in Christ. Someone who has, has some time, some longevity in their walk with God, some faithfulness in their walk with God. They're mature believers who have known the Lord from the beginning, not the beginning of time, but the beginning of their Christian walk. You know him. One of the things that I know <laughs> is God is merciful and gracious. And I, I, I know that more and more because he keeps extending it to me in my life. I know that. I, I know the heart of God. I love that. But there's a word of caution. As you mature in the Lord, don't forget about God's grace. There's a danger as a mature believer in Christ to kind of lose, forget about where you came from and forget, and you start looking at everybody else with critical eyes. And you become critical, maybe impatient, and you become unloving. You basically become a grumpy old man or a grumpy old woman. <laughs> Don't become a grumpy old man or a grumpy old woman in the Lord. Don't, don't let your heart get hardened that way. So the mature believer in Christ needs to hear and understand and apply this epistle in their established walk. What? That they don't become unloving. That they do need to love. Because love, love permeates throughout 1 John. The mature believer also needs to continue abiding in Christ, continuing to walk in the light and not to let their guard down. You don't, get to a, you don't get to a place where, it's, uh, as a believer, oh, I'm at retirement. I mean, you might retire in your jobs. That's the careers, whatever. That's, that's different. But as a believer, man, we never retire. You know, the, the minute you go, I'm, I'm going to just coast for a while, man, the enemy goes, all right, I got, a, I got another one on the line. Learn the lesson from Solomon, 1 Kings 11.4. For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. That blows me away. The Bible says he was the most wisest man that ever lived before, and there was no one that would ever be wiser than him afterwards. Human wisdom. Man, this guy was wise. <coughs> he had spiritual wisdom too. I mean, look at all the Proverbs that he wrote. Amazing. And yet, Nehemiah says this, chapter 13, verse 26. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? He's speaking about his pagan women. Yet among many nations, there was no king like him. I mean, he was blessed. There was no king like him who was beloved of his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, pagan women caused even him to sin. So, John's writing to the mature believer. The mature believer. Don't become unloving. Don't let your guard down. Keep plowing ahead. That was the second person he's addressing. The third person. I write to you, young men, again, also in verse 13. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. And so I was looking up, okay, what's the young man? What does that mean in the Greek? Well, the young man, it literally means a youth under 40. <laughs> so if you're under 40 this morning, the Bible still considers you a youth. <laughs> you're still a kid. <laughs> Uh, you may not feel like one, but that's what the Bible says anyways. You're definitely no longer a babe in Christ, though. So I'm talking about the spiritual aspect. You're definitely no longer a babe in Christ, but you're also not an old season mature believer. You're someone who's in their prime. They've overcome the wicked one. This is a good thing, by the way. How have they done it? It's in verse 14. Because you are strong and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. These are the believers who the Bible says are full of age, or, or of full age, who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. And how do they do that? Through the word of God. Man, they've been using the word of God. They're strong because of the word of God abiding in them. And as a result of that, man, they've overcome the wicked one. If the word of God abides in you, then Psalm 1 applies to you. Blessed is the man or woman. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scornful. But his delight 
is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. This is the growing believer who's using God's word. They've overcoming sin. It's awesome. That's a great, they're in the prime of their walk. It's great. But the growing believer also needs to understand and apply this epistle so that he may not sin because sin is deceptive. The enemy is just ready to pounce on any one of us. So this word applies to them. Just because they're overcoming today doesn't mean that they're going to overcome tomorrow. It's an ongoing battle that we're in. And then the fourth person, you might say, wait a minute, I think there's only three here because he's repeating himself. The fourth person, the end of verse 13, I write to you little children because you've known the Father. Because you've known the Father. Wait a minute, wait a minute. He said that to the mature believers. Have you known the Father? Now he's speaking to babes in Christ. For you've, It just seems kind of odd because he's using the same kind of... Uh, uh, admonition or whatever you see the thing is that little children is not the same as the infant in the greek anyways in verses 1 through 12 this is a half-grown boy or girl according to the dictionary it's figurative of an immature christian now it makes a little bit more sense these believers they're not babes in Christ. They've matured somewhat. I mean, they know the Father. The Bible says if you know Jesus Christ, if you've seen Jesus Christ, if you are in Christ, you're in the Father, right? We have that fellowship. So they have, in that sense, they have the Father, but they're not yet at the young men's stage. They're not yet strong. Why? Because they're not leaning on the Word of God. They're not using the Word of God. They're not growing in the Word of God. And they're certainly not at the season fully mature believer's state. And so why does Paul say, I write to you little children, your teenagers, you could translate there, I write to you teenagers because you have known the Father. And I don't know that fully, but this is what I think. I think it's just a warning. Hey, don't be cocky. <laughs> don't think you've arrived. And how easy that can happen. Don't get prideful. In fact, pride is the very first sin. It was Lucifer's sin. That's what caused him to rebel against God. And pride has destroyed the walks of many growing believers over the years. It's one of the, it's one of the tools of the enemy, pride. What's beautiful about these lists, so I asked you at the beginning, where are you in this? But the beautiful thing is, maybe you say, man, I feel like I'm still, a, I'm still immature, I'm still a teenager, I, you know, I'm, I'm not really using the word of God the way I know I should, whatever. The beautiful thing is no one has to stay in that state. You can progress. You can grow. We can all move on to maturity. One of the pastors uh, that spoke at the men's conference, his name is Pastor John Snodderly, and he's from Antioch, California. And he was, before he even got into his teaching, he was just sharing some devotions that he had uh, just gone through. And he was talking about in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, and the verse there says, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children. And he was, and he, as he was speaking, I was furiously writing down notes as fast as I could. But he said this, or something along the lines, we are to emulate a spiritual life by living the character and nature of Christ day in and day out. And we're to be imitators of Christ. And then he said this, which I think is key, not maintaining what I have, but going beyond. Stretching yourself, for example. Not just being complacent. And then he said this, eradicate those immature things that we do and make room for more of God's grace and nature in my life. And so you want to grow, you want to get out of that baby stage? That, that, that's cool, you can do it. You can do it by being an imitator of God. So that was the four persons in this passage of Scripture. Now we get to three plays. Verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the, wor the love of the Father is not in him. So what's John speaking about? He's not speaking about the physical earth. Uh, although we're not to worship the physical earth. There's people out there that worship Mother Earth. You know, we just had Earth Day and long ago. And people are worshiping Mother Earth or Gai Guyana or Gaia, whatever her name is. You know, that they, uh, the, the witchcraft type stuff, occultish things. We're not to love the world. Why? Because it's temporary and it's not 
eternal. But John's not referring to the physical earth. John's not even talking about the population of the world. After all, John 3.16, right? God so loved the population. I'm throwing that word in there. God so loved the population of the world that he sent his son to die for the sins of the population of the world. So John's not talking about don't love the population, don't love the people of the world. That's not what John's saying. He's referring to the philosophy, the wisdom, and the spirit of this world. Don't love that. The philosophy of this world is empty, and it's according to the traditions of men in Colossians 2, verse 8. The wisdom of this world is foolishness to God, 1 Corinthians 3, 19. And a person can never know God through the wisdom of this world, 1 Corinthians 1, 21. And the spirit of this world is evil, and according to the prince of this world, Ephesians 2, verse 2. This is what Paul is talking about. The things of this world are material and transitory and not spiritual and eternal. They're passing away. Don't love what's passing away. Verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of, this, of the Father, but is of the world. I don't play football. But if you were in the NFL and had an opposing team's playbook, and I think that happened not too long ago, um, if you had an opposing team's playbook, man, that would give you quite the advantage, wouldn't it? You, you know what their plays are going to be. You know, you know what to anticipate. You know it would definitely give you an advantage in the game if you knew their plays. Fighters, they watch videos of their opponents' previous matches. Why? Because they want to learn how they bob and weave, and they want to learn, you know, they want to learn... What they do, why? Because it gives them an advantage. So they know what to expect when they get into the ring with this person. They've been prepared. They know. Our opponent, Satan, has three plays. And he's used them from the beginning of man's history to get man to sin against God. Well, what if you and I knew what his three plays were? Or his three moves? It would give you an advantage, wouldn't it? Yes, it would. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 2.11, lest Satan should take advantage of us for we're not ignorant of his devices. He's not really original. He does the same thing over and over and over and over again. His three plays are the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now the word lust, it literally just means strong desire, longing for something. But in the context of what we're reading, it usually it's a desire for something sinful. So that's what lust means. So the first play is the lust of the flesh. What is the flesh? The flesh in this context is not our physical bodies. It's our sin nature. It's our fallen nature. It's also known in the Bible as the natural man. That's what the lust of the flesh is in this respect. And so the lust or the longing of the flesh is to satisfy the desires of our sin nature. That's what it boils down to. <clears throat> now the thing is, desires are not bad in and of itself. I mean, God has created us with drives and desires. We can long for food. Man, I, I long for food at least three or five times a day. I, can have, I have that drive. I have, have a drive for food or drink or rest. I've been working my... My, I've been working really hard. <laughs> I need a rest, you know. That's that's God's given me that that hopefully that common sense. Hey, you need to take a break. Even sexual fulfillment. Sorry. Listen, God created us with these drives to satisfy. They're not sinful. Listen, it's fine to satisfy hunger. It's fine. It's sin to be a glutton. The Bible says. It's fine to satisfy thirst, but it's sin to get drunk with alcoholic beverages. It's fine to satisfy our need for rest, but the Bible says it's also a sin to be lazy. It's fine to have sex, sorry, within the boundary, though, of marriage of one biological male and one biological female. Within that boundary that God has created, that's normal. It's good. It's not bad. Anything outside of that boundary is what the Bible calls sexual immorality. So the drives in themselves are not bad. And we're physically born with a sin nature, with the flesh. 
the natural man. We're physically born with that. You, you, you can't get out of it. You're born with it. But we become partakers of the divine nature when we're spiritually reborn. The Bible refers to that as the spirit or the spiritual man. The Bible also tells us in Galatians 5.17, verses 23, it clearly states that both natures exist in the born-again believer. But there's a battle. And if you know, I mean, if you're a born-again believer for the last two seconds, you know there's a battle that takes place. So his first play is to tempt you according to the lusts of the flesh. His second play is the lust of the eyes. That's the lust, well, the lust of the flesh appeals to our fallen nature, right? Our, our base drives. The lust of the, uh, of the eyes appeals to our mind and our intellect. And it comes through, it comes to the mind through our eyes. The eyes are the gateway to our mind. I like what uh, Jameson Fawcett Brown said in their dictionary. The eyes are the avenue through which outward things of the world, riches, pomp, and beauty inflame us. I thought that was, it's kind of an old description, but it's a, it's a good description. It's also how you and I view the world through our intellect. You know, there's a lot of people that uh, have this, this mind where they are uh, evolutionists. They deny God. And I think it also includes coveting the lust of the eyes, seeing what you want there. That's, the, that's, the, that's his second play. The third play is the pride of life. And pride is a boasting. This is a definition. It's boasting about one what is not, what one is not, or does not possess. It's vanity. It's, uh, here's another description. Excessive pride in or admiration of one's own appearances or achievements. So what's the pride of life? I've got this definition. It means showing off to fellow mortals. I thought that was kind of close. It means showing off to fellow mortals the pride, pomp, or manner of life. The ambitious or vainglorious pursuit of the honors, glories, and splendors of this life. The luxury of life for the purpose of showing off, whether in dress, house, furniture, servants, food. I struggle with that. I'm sure you do too, you know. Man, I want everybody to see my new car, my new vehicle. You know, I want to, you, you know, we deal with that. Keeping up with the Joneses. So there you have it. Satan's three tricks up his sleeve. And like I said, he's not original. He's been using it before. He used it first in the Garden of Eden. Remember, God gave a command to Adam and Eve and said, don't, you can eat of any of the trees in the garden except for this one. You can eat any fruit you want, just not of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God defined a boundary, and Satan tempted Eve to go beyond that boundary. That was the temptation. And so we read in Genesis 3, 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that's the lust of the flesh. When she saw that the tree was good for, uh, for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, that's the lust of the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, there's the pride of life, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Man, that was the first, the first time he tried that on humanity. Satan also used those same three plays on Jesus in the wilderness. You can read about it in Luke chapter 4. And the devil said to him, If you're the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. There's the lust of the flesh. Listen, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days. That was the boundary that God gave him. Here's the, that led him into the wilderness. That was the boundary that the Father had given the Son. And it says afterwards he was hungry. And so now the devil comes and tempts him. And it's not if you're the Son of God, but he says this, but since you're the Son of God. That's really what it means. Since you're the Son of God, do something for yourself. Be a little selfish. You ever seen that bump that there's a billboard around town from uh, one of the hospitals in here? I won't name which one, but you drive by and they've got this thing like, you, it's okay to be selfish, you know? And I think it means with taking care of your health, but whatever. It just strikes me as odd. It's okay to be selfish? Okay. But that's this temptation. Be a little selfish. You deserve. Satisfy that legitimate longing in an illegitimate way. That's the temptation. Verse 5 of chapter 4 of Luke 
So then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship me before, uh, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. There's a lust of the eyes right there. He's basically saying, hey, look at the kingdoms of the world. You can have everything that you see, everything that your eye desires. You know, the interesting thing is, all authority is going to be given to Christ. It would be given to Christ after the cross. This temptation was to grab that authority without having the sacrifice of the cross, without with taking the shortcut and not dying on the cross for our sins. Praise God he didn't do that, right? Verse 9, Luke chapter 4, Then he brought him to the wilderness and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And there's the pride of life. Basically what he's saying is, Hey, prove to the high priests, prove to the inhabitants of Jerusalem that you are the Messiah. Man, won't they be impressed when they see a horde of angels pop up out of nowhere and grab you before you touch the ground? They're going to be impressed. That, that's the temptation. Prove yourself to the people around you. Those are the same three tricks that Satan uses to tempt each one of us. That's the three plays. So what do we do? How can we be ready to handle those temptations, not if, but when they come? They're going to come in one form or another. How about the lust of the flesh? How do, we, how do we address that? Romans 13, verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Man, don't provide an opportunity. Stay clear of an opportunity. Don't feed your flesh. You start feeding your flesh, the tempta- you're not going to be able to withstand that temptation. Make no provision for your flesh. Galatians 5, 24 and 25. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. We have to have a funeral for our flesh. <laughs> we got to put it to death every day. Moment by moment sometimes in our lives. Crucify our flesh. 1 Corinthians 9, 27. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Don't let your flesh have control over you. You're you're, you're not a slave to sin anymore. You've been set free by the blood of Jesus Christ. Don't allow it to control you. It doesn't have to anymore. How about the lust of the eyes? This is one for us guys. It might be for us women in some situation. I mean, you flip the the genders around i have made a covenant with my eyes why then should i look upon a young woman and set boundaries in your life set boundaries that you won't cross plan ahead make no provision set those boundaries Psalm 119, verse 36 and 37 incline my heart to your testimonies and not to covetousness Turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things and revive me in your way. Who cares if the person next to you got the brand new house and the new job and the things seems to be, don't worry about it. That's passing away. (laughs) They're going to enjoy it for a very short time. (laughs) We have eternity to enjoy a mansion and blessed blessing forever with our Lord and Savior. So view things of life through the lens of Scripture. Romans 12, 2. And you guys probably know Romans 12, 1 and 12, 2. But Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Renew your mind. What does that mean? Change your thinking. Be transformed in your thinking. Don't think the way the world thinks. How do you renew your mind? That word renew is the word renovation. 
Uh, this last weekend, I love, I love to bring in things that we've just done, but this last weekend we went to, I booked uh, four rooms for us guys in a hotel, and we get there and there's these workers working on the outside of the building. I'm thinking, oh, okay. We get inside and, and they're doing renovations in this hotel. And they gave us all rooms. I think one pe person had to go down to another room, but that's a long story. Anyways, we got rooms on this renovated floor. Well, what was kind of interesting about this renovated floor, and it looked nice. It was clean. It was, it was, it was clean. You know, it, it looked new in, on the inside. But the ice machine on that level didn't work. Try to use the, uh, there was no ice machine. When we were getting ready to leave, I remember going to the elevator. And I'm going to push the button, and, and part of the buttons, it's not there. It's like, a, you know, I'm like, okay, that's kind of interesting. This hotel was renovated, but they didn't complete the job. They started on it but they didn't finish it. Listen, for you and me, in our lives and in our minds, all things need to be made new. Don't do a half job. Do it complete. And it may mean different things to different people here this morning. It might mean for you, you need to renew your mind by changing what you're entertained with. That might be something. You just need to move away from whatever that is. For some people, it might mean new friends. Because the friends that I'm with, man, they're always dragging me down. I need, to, I, need to, I need to find new friends. Or maybe it's new pursuits. And for all of us, it's read the word, study the word, apply the word, and obey the word. Because it's God's word that's going to transform us. <coughs> How about the pride of life? Philippians 2, verse 5 through 7, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's 1 Peter 5, verse 5. You know, the Bible says in the Old Testament that the proud, they wear their pride like a necklace, like jewelry. You know, check this out. You know, look at the rock on my, you know, they wear it like jewelry. But we are to be clothed in humility. And so John says here in verse 15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Warren Wiersbe in his commentary calls this the love that God hates. I like that. Don't love what God hates. Love what God loves. Verse 17, And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Those things that we try to hang on to, that we're, you know, we're, we're trying to gain whatever it is of this world, it's temporary. It's going gonna, it's gonna to burn eventually. But the word of God, and doing the will of God, that's what's going to abide forever. And I want to just close with this last verse, 2 Timothy 2, 22. Flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, with those who call on the name of the Lord out of a pure heart. I want to have the worship team come up here. Let's go, Lord, in prayer.